When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Michael J. Diamond, who is a training and supervising analyst and faculty member at the Los Angeles Institute and Society for Psychoanalytic Studies. He's also a fellow of the International Psychoanalytic Association, the American Psychological Association, and the American Academy of Clinical Psychology. He is well known for his national and international presentations and is an honored recipient of numerous awards for his teaching, writing, and clinical contributions. He has authored over 90 articles and chapters of books in the areas of psychoanalytic technique and the analytic mind, masculinity, femininity, and the psychoanalytic gender theory, uh, fathering, and the paternal function, trauma and dissociation, hypnosis and altered states, and group processes and social action. And this includes an article that was just published in Psychoanalytic Inquiry Special Section on Perspectives on Populist and Fascistic States of Mind. In addition, he has authored five books, including today's featured book, Ruptures in the American Psyche, containing destructive populism in perilous times. His other books include Masculinity and Its Discontents, The Male Psyche, and The Inherent Tensions of Maturing Manhood. My Father Before Me, How Fathers and Sons Influence Each Other Throughout Their Lives, and The Second Century of Psychoanalysis, Evolving Perspectives on Therapeutic Action. He has a full-time clinical practice in Los Angeles, California, where he's also active in teaching, supervising, and writing. Today, we'll be talking about ruptures in the American psyche, as I mentioned, which is a very timely and important book with many facets. In one way, I think it is quite unusual, since I believe there's something in it that almost everyone can relate to in one way or the other. In a few minutes, I'm going to ask Michael to provide our listeners with an overview of the book's main themes. But first, I'd like to begin by asking about his creating the book in the first place. So, Michael, can you tell us what led you to write this book? And perhaps you could also discuss why you also uh, make a strong plea for interdisciplinary scholarship to be integrated with psychoanalytic understandings that focus on unconscious and less rational dynamics. Of so, course. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Karen, for inviting me. I look forward to, to speaking with you since we also share a mutual interest in how populism can go astray and what's going on. From my perspective in the U.S. and your own, you've looked worldwide at uh, populistic uh, destructiveness. Uh, why I wrote the book, how it came to be. Uh, I mean, I can go into a long history about it, but I won't. <laughs> what I will say is that around uh, in 2015, when uh, Trump was, uh, you know, first uh, announcing his uh, desire to run for president. Uh, I, I went to a workshop that was held by psychoanalysts in Los Angeles, 
And I was a bit dismayed by the way in which so many of the uh, good thinking, rational thinking, psychoanalytic, oriented thinking analysts had absolutely no idea that Trump could win the election. We're convinced that in fact, that it couldn't possibly happen because there, you know, how many racists are there and sexists and misogynists and classists and so on who could possibly support uh, what, what Trump was offering to the public. Uh, and I, oh, I'm sorry. That's amazing. I mean, I'm surprised at that too. Yeah. And uh, what I was really, really struck by was kind of the group thinking that had sort of, sort of taken over uh, a, a group of really, you know, sound thinking, bright, uh, liberal thinking, uh, analytically oriented or analyst therapist. Uh, and so I, I began to, to concern myself much more with the kind of group functioning that could happen in any enclave. Uh, and was surely happening in, in the U.S. And it, so it led me, uh, you know, particularly once Trump won the election, which was not surprising to me, uh, to look at some of the fissures and divisions in, in the U.S. system and uh, how uh, groups could align behind somebody like Trump with his obvious character flaws and uh, questionable tactics and uh, misleading uh, statements and lies and so on. Uh, how could that happen? And so I really dove into both my own psychoanalytic uh, ways of thinking, particularly around groups, and uh, in interdisciplinary studies that also tried to get a better sense of, to, to provide me with a better sense of how this could happen and what were the seeds for this kind of culmination that uh, uh, could result in in the last decade, and that led me eventually to write the book and try to put out some of my thinking of, about uh, the dynamics that were involved in the unconscious processes that were involved. And the reason I, I also make a strong case for interdisciplinary perspectives is that I think psychoanalysts can go awry with a kind of arrogance and thinking zealously that all we got to do is expose the unconscious dynamics and everything will be uh, hunky-dory. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think we really need to be working together closely with interdisciplinary thinkers, particularly historians, political scientists, economic uh, thinkers, and so on, who, who've laid out a lot of the guidelines, I think, for how this kind of thing can happen. So I try to bring a lot of that together in the book, uh, and um, that's what led to the book that was written last year. Yeah. Well, I think you did a, a very good job. There is a lot in it. So much so that I would uh, love you to discuss the major themes. I think it would be very helpful for listeners to know the book's major themes. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, well, to, to be very succinct about it, and I know we'll get into more specifics, uh, I do explore the conditions that lead to large group regression which can happen in any large group from the left or the right in the American system. Um, I also explore the longstanding nature of American populism uh, and its relationship to authoritarianism. And in doing so, I look at both the normative or more healthy aspects of populism and the more destructive aspects of it. I also try to look at the unique fit between malignant leadership that you know, is represented by autocratic uh, leaders like Trump and perverted containment within the regressed groups. Um, I try to study some of the conspiratorial and psychotic processes maintaining such large groups and the psychic mechanisms that, uh, that turn a regressed large group into a personality cult, which is what we see today. And in particular, I stress the unique contributions that psychoanalysts can make in managing such regressive, more malignant or malevolent uh, dynamics. And that being said, again, I want to emphasize that it's important to note that uh, psychoanalytic zealotry that overstretches its reach can create greater resistance to its usefulness. 
especially when it arrogantly is applied as, a, as if it's a superior instrument to essential knowledge that's obtained from other disciplines. As Freud said way back, the, one of the great resistances we have to psychoanalysts comes from the society around. Uh, and we have to be very mindful the way in which we communicate our understandings with respect and uh, hopefully empathy. Right. Uh, this is uh, so timely that we're talking about this now. Well, A, that you wrote it, but B, it's timely because uh, obviously former President Trump is running again. And it's it's very interesting, um, curious. Uh, there are other words I, I could add, but uh, I'll stay with curious that his popularity remains very strong despite the numerous indictments and controversies that surround him. I, I think the, the last the, the last count I was aware of, I believe, uh, I think he has 78. There, there may be more by now, which is unheard of. If we talked about this a couple of years ago, I think we both would have been quite taken aback. At least I would have. But anyway, uh, can you say more about what you mean by Trumpism and what factors contribute to the personality cult itself being a major factor in American politics? Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, what I mean by Trumpism, of course, is the way in which uh, Trump has co-opted uh, a large wing of the Republican Party in particular, uh, his so-called base, uh, that is willing to go along with him as if he as if they're all operative in a personality cult and follow his lead. What makes it a personality cult rather than a political movement is the lack of a real ideology. Uh, Trump has never had an ideology, as most anyone knows who has followed him. Um, his, if you want to call it an ideology, it's an ideology of um, obtaining power. And uh, he's extremely successful in being able to do that and utilize the system. Uh, I think your question, although, is asking how, how can this happen? How can people, uh, you know, be, how can you know healthy individuals uh, become co-opted to become part of a cult? And that's a much more complicated, nuanced question that really invites us to look at so much of what the book is about, because uh, it, it's about the kind of conditions that lead to large group regressions. Um, conditions that uh, I argue very forcefully uh, are not about economic disparity as much as about existential annihilating kinds of more primitive anxieties that are very operative in the culture. Anxieties that have to do with identity and status uh, and uh, fears that are uh, fueled by demagogic leaders like, like Trump and some of his followers. Uh, so when people get very frightened, existentially speaking, um, looking at it in Freudian metapsychological terms, uh, we see how the self-preservative drive seeks to help an individual try to maintain his or her sanity by utilizing defenses. And the kinds of defenses that are being utilized are much more primitive uh, sorts of defenses as you're trying to stave off this anxiety of, of, of annihilation or existence. And uh, while all of this may be operating much more unconsciously for individuals and within the group collective, uh, the, the kinds of defenses require uh, regression to much more of what Kleinians would call a paranoid schizoid realm of functioning, where uh, denial and disavow reality becomes very useful to maintain sanity where projection of one's own impulses and fears are uh, sent outward in a projective identification sort of fashion, where splitting becomes a primary mode of defense. Uh, goodness is held to be inside, badness is projected outward, and so on. These kinds of things operate. And when the timing is right, and what I write about in the book is a perfect fit, uh, a leader can come along and take a group that's prone to this sort of regression and uh, offer the illusion of some kind of safety, some kind of security uh, that allows the much more primitive anxieties and fantasies to be contained, although the way it's contained is what I call perverted containment, 
uh, not healthy containment. Uh, healthy containment would be these kinds of anxieties are neutralized. Uh, perverted containment means these anxieties are projected outward, uh, are not contained, uh, but have to be constantly refueled and kept outside. So what, what's kept outside, and this is how a cult gets formed, uh, is what is unwanted, is unacceptable within. And uh, in the cult, then, uh, there has to be a demonization or a dehumanization of the, the group that's outside, the out-group. So the in-group becomes um, you know, what's good, and the out-group becomes what's bad. And of course, that can take on a, a manic, ecstatic kind of quality where it becomes prone to violence, like we saw on January 6th, a couple of years ago, and uh, you know, a very dangerous state where we're seeing now the uh, possible erosion of democracy itself. We'll get back, I'm sure, to some of this, but that's, again, another reductive well, thing perhaps talking about. Go ahead. No, that's a very good point. I, we, I, we see this splitting with immigrants a lot, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's in this country or other places, that they're the bad people, that they're you know separated and we're the good people. Mm -hmm. And of course, populists provoke that. Um, well, well I, I would just briefly question it just a little bit. I don't think populists provoke it. I think it can occur in a populist movement when it goes astray. I mean, populism to me is, is essentially in the American history is a very important part of democracy. I mean, this is essentially, uh, you know, populists represent sort of the real people, the common man, Thomas Paine's writing, uh, for example, and the founders thought about how important it was to have a place for the common man who could uh, express himself through populist movements. But the populist movement, of course, is also counter to the elites who control the government, uh, the governing officials themselves. Today, we would talk about academics and professionals and uh, journalists and uh, so on that represent the more elite factions. And so there's always a tension in the American democracy, American form of democracy, not all. Uh, forms, by the way, are, are built on this model that the American uh, democracy is built on. It's part of what's unique about it, because the, in the American democracy, the, the founders understood that there would always be a tension between the common man and the elites, uh, and it's the, not to eradicate that tension, but to contain or hold that tension together that becomes the hallmark of uh, the American ideals, not that they're always uh, actualized, but the ideals uh, are formed to, to hold the tension together. And that's a beautiful analogy to what goes on in the human psyche that we psychoanalysts know about very well, that somehow we have to be able to contain the tensions between the, the uh, contradictory sides of ourselves or the various sides of ourselves, whether we talk about it in structural terms, the ego and the id, whether we talk about it in terms of internal objects, uh, there has to be a containment. And so the container-contained uh, metaphor becomes a very useful way of trying to understand uh, how American democracy can work and how it can go astray when the container is corrupt, pervert, and uh, too weak. I, I think when I made the comment I did, I was thinking more of populism in other countries and how it goes awry when populists um, say they want to save the people from the elite who they say are oppressing them. But they, and I'm thinking of various countries in Eastern Europe, but Populism is all over the world. Um, sure. Sure. And it, I, I think that conflict is, is present everywhere. Uh, and it, yes. it, the question is, when does it get activated in terms of destructive processes? Uh, you know, when, do, when does populism take a form where there's some kind of wish to eradicate the other side? So I, I like what you have to say about American populism and the tension between the elite and the common man. I think that is important to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. 
think when things go awry, it's related to the container not working anymore, lack of containment. Yeah. Uh, I think that's part of what you're saying in destructive populism, but I'll let you talk about that. Sure, sure. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I utilize a lot of some of the very sage psychoanalytic thinking about groups and containment, uh, whether it's a talking about a second skin uh, or a healthy container um, and uh, a frame, you know, leaguers writing, and uh, some of the uh, really wise psychoanalytic thinkers who looked at groups, you know, ranging from Freud and, and beyond to more contemporary uh, thinkers like Volkan and Kernberg, uh, Eric Fromm in the 40s and 50s. Uh, did a lot of interesting work on groups, particularly looking at uh, what was going on in Nazi Germany and how uh, what Hannah Arendt uh, talks about as the banality of evil can arise in group um, when people are somehow precluded from critical thinking. And that's part of what we see in a very regressed large group. Critical thinking seems to attenuate. And of course, it can attenuate so severely that not only do basic assumptions using Beyond's language uh, take hold where fantasies, utopian-like fantasies and omnipotent uh, uh, Manchian kind of uh, fantasies of destroying whatever is other than the in-group uh, can, can take hold in such a way that violence can easily arise. And that's what we see in, you know, very... Um, totalistic, proto-fascist uh, ways of, of thinking. I, I wonder if you could clearly explain to our listeners the connection between large group regression and what has happened with the Trump phenomenon or Trumpism. What's mm -hmm. the what happens to large groups of people mm -hmm. as you see it? Well, it, it, I think that... Uh, Again, it, it requires thinking about the conditions that lead to large group regression, which I think we can just very summarily um, touch on. You know, we know that economic disparity can lead to it. We know that terrors of climate change, for example, COVID, uh, for example, uh, massive um, uh, violations of civil rights and injustices can lead to it uh, and create uh, you know, people in, you know, enclaves of fear, uh, multiculturalism and diversity and changes in American demographics have played a large role where people who previously had been at uh, uh, the higher range of the caste system, to use Isabel Wilkerson's terms, uh, are now being threatened uh, by an influx of what you suggested earlier, immigrants, for example, or uh, among white people, uh, threats to their dominant status because they're becoming an increasingly smaller percentage of the population, uh, that too can play a role. Uh, all of these kinds of conditions sort of set the stage for a demagogue or a person who really, uh, well, I, I love what the Frankfurt School of Critical Thinking says, uh, prophets of deceit is what they call demagogues who uh, can prophesize uh, great lies that uh, can win people over. And you know, very skillful demagogues, very charismatic leaders, uh, strong men, so to speak, who play on uh, fallacious notions of masculinity uh, can really um, co-opt people uh, into believing that they're in dire danger of being replaced. So we have the great replacement theory that sociologists and political scientists are talking about, uh, where people are, are carrying around a tremendous, a lot of people are carrying around a lot of anxiety about re being replaced. Uh, the very term like white privilege sets people, a lot of people into crazy notions of, oh my God, they're gonna take away everything I have and replace me. Those kinds of anxieties set the stage for uh, 
Trumpism <laughs> and a leader who's very skillful at both um, persuasive techniques, good salesmen, so to speak, and what I talk about in the book as um, hypnotic-like techniques and manipulation tactics that really can uh, uh, convince people to uh, defend themselves with, with fantasies of um, returning to greatness, for example, MAGA, uh, fantasies of uh, omnipotence at a very primitive level, uh, of eradicating uh, the tensions, kind of returning to a conflict-free realm of functioning. If only we get rid of the radical Democrats, socialists, uh, et cetera, et cetera, we won't have to have this conflict and tension anymore. And you know, living in, in a world where the drudgery of dealing with reality doesn't have to be dealt with. Uh, that's a fantasy everybody has on the left, on the right, and so on. But the extent to which it's mobilized and e exploited by a demagogic leader, of course, is what leads to cults of various kinds. And that's, that in short, is, is what I think we're, we're seeing. Well, I think you've read my mind there because I was just thinking about watching people um, being interviewed after Trump rallies. And prior to the 2016 election, and it was it was fascinating. Even though I I had a handle on it somewhat, of people who would say when asked why they liked him so much, he's just like we are, mm -hmm. and you know, they might have been lovely people living in a, a lovely um, middle class home in a suburb in we'll say some state of the Midwest. Nothing like Trump at all, but I guess the fantasy somehow hitching up with him, or maybe it's uh, maybe this has more to do with his cult leader uh, effect on people, mm -hmm. maybe both, but it, it just amazed me. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of what Freud wrote about when he said that in, in mass psychology of groups, what happens is the individual ego ideal gets located in the group leader. And uh, with that, of course, comes a superego, which means that uh, one's own sense of morality is kind of um, outsourced <laughs> to the group leader. And in the case of Trump, people like him, uh, who, who have a obviously terribly compromised sense of morality, uh, there's a kind of shamelessness that begins to take hold in the group. And that's what we see. So individuals who have a real sense of morality, evangelical Christians, for example, or Orthodox yeah. Jews, or what have you, can suddenly become shamelessly invested in the ego ideal and superego of, of a corrupt or perverted leader. And we see that, that happen, yeah. which of course reminds us to be very careful about thinking of the individuals in the group as being of the same character as the right. lead. And I'll, we'll not. get to that, I'm sure, when we talk about how do we better contain these kinds of things. But sure. um, You have a lot of, I don't, I don't want to miss anything in your book. And uh, if we had five or six or more hours, <laughs> mm -hmm. I might be able to accomplish uh, covering a lot of it. But perhaps we can meet again. In, in the meantime, you have a glossary that's just wonderful. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could touch upon a couple of the, of the concepts that you've described. I, I could choose them or you can if they, if they are come to your mind. In a... Sure. Well, one of the things that before we even get into the specifics, I, I wanted to say is that there's so much jargon that we use as psychoanalysts, and there's plenty of jargon in the other disciplines that uh, you know talk about politics, whether we're talking about democracy or authoritarianism or fascism, totalitarianism, or what have you. So I wanted to at least help the readers of the book uh, know what I'm talking about and how I'm defining these various terms. So I, I try to do that with both the uh, more popular political uh, terms and uh, the psychoanalytic uh, jargon that we, we use in our profession. And by the way, 
we all use it in different ways. So uh, I wanted to make it clear that you know, how I'm using it. So what would, in particular, what? what well, let, let, before we uh, go to the glossary, although people understand it in a global way, maybe, sort of, can you talk about what happens in large, in the situation of a large group progression, more or less like, Vavik Vulcan thinks about it. I think you think about it in the same way. Mm -hmm. So we have this large group of people, say they're uh, Trump-leading Trump people. What is it that happens in this large group? Well, a lot of things can happen, but you're specifically asking about the regression, uh, yeah. a, a major form of regression. Um, what I'm, I'm focused on primarily is the kind of regression where both primitive anxieties and fantasies are stimulated and are defended against in particular ways. And why they get stimulated and um, accessed and then why they have to be defended against more rigidly, let's say, uh, is because... Uh, what what's activated in the regression are very deep and primitive fears that individuals who are part of the group uh, experience and then can in mass identify with one another. So it all becomes uh, a large group uh, experience of regression where people are terribly fearful, uh, consciously or unconsciously mostly unconsciously, uh, of, uh, of being eradicated, being annihilated in some way. Replaced is the conscious level of how we're talking about it. But at an unconscious level, uh, you know, we as analysts can, can understand how very deep, deep anxieties about life and death uh, are stimulated uh, and uh, require massive forms of defense uh, from denial and disavow again to projection, much more paranoid kinds of uh, psychotic kinds of processes and conspiratorial uh, theories and beliefs and so on. When that takes hold in a large group, of course, the group becomes identified with each other, which in any large group, whether it's a very regressed large group or a not so regressed large group, there's benefits of being part of the group, because in being part of a group, um, the identifications with each other allow you to sort of mutually uh, defend against these deeper anxieties and uh, in a more constructive way, hopefully, to sublimate some of the fears and, and, and anxieties and fantasies that, that are stimulated. Uh, healthy groups you know, we see much more sublimation and often very productive or creative work that takes place. Beyond made the distinction between a work group uh, and a basic assumption group. In the work group, of course, the task at hand, which, which say the Republican Party had a very successful work group for many years, uh, where there was a task at hand to uh, abide by conservative principles and try to get them and activated in, in action. When it becomes so regressed though, the basic assumptions take hold and critical thinking uh, begins to fade. And the basic assumptions now become much more of a faith-based kind of um, movement towards realizing whatever it may be, identification with a leader or a messiah, uh, a flight, flight kind of response where you have to get rid of the opposition because the opposition is trying to get rid of you rather than containing the differences. Opposition becomes life and death totalitarianism. That, that sort of thing is what we see in very regressed groups. And so the in-group has to get rid of the out-group through demonization, dehumanization, and possibly even violence. One of the uh, terms that you describe in, in the glossary is fascism. Mm -hmm. Fascism and Trumpism, how are they connected? Well, um, that's a tricky one because uh, fascism is, is truly a nationalistic movement when it's talked about in, in political uh, in arenas. 
but what I, I do say and think about very seriously, uh, both in my clinical work as an analyst and also in my looking at group phenomena in the social political sphere, is that there's a proto-fascist element in all of us, uh, meaning a part of us that would just as soon eradicate, get rid of what opposes us, what's different than us, uh, what we conflict with. And the extent to which that gets regulated, of course, is, the, is to me the definition of containment and sanity versus insanity. Uh, in fascism, the effort is a kind of totalitarianism that will get rid of, for the nation's sake, let's say, uh, whatever seems to be different, uh, whatever seems to be threatening to the prevailing ideology. The reason I don't think Trumpism is fascism is because Trumpism doesn't have an ideology. Um, there is no ideology. It, it merely is a cult. <laughs> it's a personality cult. The ideology, as I said, for Trump is the ideology of maintaining power or position um, at, at, with any policy. It almost doesn't matter what the policy is. Whatever policy is going to hold the base is what's going to keep him, including a policy that says, let's get rid of the elites. Uh, let's get rid of um, the government. Let's get rid of the standards and norms of democracy. Let's get rid of truth-telling. Let's get rid of the journal, you know, and so on and so forth. A lot of this you, you specify very well in your writings. Well, that's helpful to think about Trumpism as an ism without a philosophy. Mm -hmm. Whatever is happening today, the philosophy of the day, maybe. So, yeah. yeah, I think that's useful. Um, I, you have another idea that I I think is is very important, and that's the idea that um, that we need conservative ideas as well as a conservative party and a liberal democracy. I, I haven't heard that talked about before. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's interesting. I, I think you refer to a mid-20th century historian, Richard Hofstetter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. but that is fascinating. I, I like what you wrote here. Democracy, uh, democracy stability rests on a healthy conservative party's ability to regulate its extreme reactionary factions, most prone to conspiratorial beliefs and more violent intentions. So that we need this conservative faction, I think, is is very useful and and um, kind of a new concept. Yeah, I, I mean, maybe to us as in the analytic world, but not not to historians and political scientists. Hofstadter wrote in the mid twentieth century, and he wrote about the prevailing paranoid tendency uh, throughout American political history. There was always a, a paranoia uh, that seemed to come more so from the right than the left, but it, it's not restricted to the right. It can be also very much in the left. And I think it's important that we make that clear today. Uh, what he was saying in particular and what contemporary political scientists are, are writing about is how important it is that our present day conservative party um, you know, takes a stronger stance in upholding the standards and norms of, of democracy. Why the concern? Well, first of all, why is conservative uh, ways of thinking uh, intrinsic to American democracy? Uh, that's how the founders uh, operated. Uh, you know, that's where conservatism comes from, is some sort of sense of uh, the origins uh, of, of the of the Republic itself. And uh, one of the things that makes conservatism particularly important uh, in a democracy, a liberal democracy like the United States, is that multiculturalism and diversity, which is inherent in America, and will always be and should be, uh, you know, is a threat to conservatism because it means there's change that has to be incorporated always. And so the way of life 
one's status, one's identity, is always being challenged in some way. So it's very important that conservative thinkers uh, and conservative leadership uh, is able to encompass that piece of uh, American democracy, that multiculturalism, that diversity. And if that doesn't happen, then one of the fundamental fundamental pillars that holds the uh, the bifurcated nature of the American democracy in place uh, is starting to uh, tumble and, and fall in some way. And that means containment becomes much more precarious. The inherent tension that has to exist between conservative thinking and progressive thinking begins to fall apart. And when that falls apart, uh, that's when populism can start to become destructive. It can start to take on the, the threads of uh, owning one party. And that's basically what's happened uh, in America in the last, and well before Trump, I might add. This was well underway in the uh, second half of the 20th century and it was led by um, some very uh, brilliant uh, conservative thinkers from Newt Gingrich and the Koch brothers and the Mercer family and so on, who utilized uh, their powers to be able to uh, kind of break apart that piece of um, containing tensions. So we're, we're really in a position where uh, we, we need conservative leadership, you know, like Liz Cheney, for example, to do what she did and more to step forward and say, look, we've got to stop the destruction of democracy. Uh, we've got to you know, pull back uh, some of these Trumpian methods and, uh, and uh, get back to uh, what's needed to contain the differences so that we can live in a culture where there are differences, uh, but the differences don't have to become uh, uh, oppositions that must be eradicated. Yeah. So I guess in a way, you're talking about reestablishing the frame. Mm -hmm. Yes. The yeah, idea of container contained. Yes. And you do say, which I think uh, a glimmer of hope is wonderful. Uh, it may be out of, it may be what pulls us out of the morass that we're in. Uh, I guess, I guess maybe you've talked about that, but uh, is is that a way that? Well, did you say more about that? How the container contained can, along with conservative thinking you're talking about that isn't radical, can pull us out of the morass? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, one way to, to think about it is that to, to really use the, uh, I think, very helpful psychoanalytic concept of the third. Uh, how the third is very, very important. Anytime there becomes a um, failure to individuate sufficiently, which means being able to think for oneself or for one's self within a group. Uh, and when, when we think about it in terms of the third, we also think about let's say if we analogize to the mother-infant attachment, the third, it becomes what we call often in psychoanalysis, the paternal function or the symbolic function, uh, the function that pulls the child and the mother away from a kind of merged state to be able to experience themselves as separate individuals, um, still able to attach to one another, but separate. Uh, and that third is what's been under attack. Uh, the third in the American democratic system uh, is Congress, is journalism, is truth-telling, is consensual reality, some agreement upon consensual reality, uh, is uh, the institutionalized mediators of various kinds, the judiciary, for example. All of that, all of these uh, intermediaries, let's call them, can serve as the third and pull America uh, out of a kind of merged state with 
often a delusional kind of reality where the, the right is saying, uh, we've got to get rid of the left, lock them up, and, you know, put them in the way, and so on. And the, and the left may be saying, all we got to do is get rid of Trump, and we'll be fine. Uh, it, it, there's a fantasy on, on both sides that doesn't incorporate the fundamental dialectical tension that has to be held in a democracy that's very precarious and precious and requires constant attention and work and effort and so on. So how do we get the third uh, back on the horse, so to speak, uh, to you know, the way the ego can, can ride uh, the id, uh, the more primitive dynamics in the culture? That's the big question, of course. Yeah. And challenge. Challenge. Well, I think to dive a little bit deeper, I think and you've been talking about it, but specifically to put uh, labels on this, um, you and other historians have said that we seem to be in a post-truth era. Uh -huh. Definitely agree with this. Uh, I believe that truth-telling is crucially important. So how to get back to that? Uh, and to get away from uh, false information, fake news, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so much so that I've, in a book that I'm editing, I have a chapter on why truth telling is so important in democracy, pivoting mm -hmm. towards evidence. But this is also what you're talking about in order to preserve liberal democracy. Um, and stress that truth telling by those outside the conspiratorial bubble or cult must be utilized as a tool or a weapon of resistance of Trumpist attacks on veritable truth, as well as its persistent use of conspiratorial thinking. Can you say more about that or just about truth-telling in general? Well, I emphasize on those outside the conspiratorial bubble because of those within the conspiratorial bubble um, you know, are not telling the truth. Uh, but, you know, truth-telling is a very tricky business. Um, we know that as, as analysts and therapists, don't we? I mean, we could tell a patient who's operating with a delusion that it's, it's not like that, and that's met with more resistance because we now become part of the conspiracy that's trying to convince them that something's wrong with their thinking. Uh, with what they perceive reality to be. So we know that it's very tricky. As John Steiner puts it, we all need our illusions. We all have them. Uh, so how do we disabuse someone of an illusion? Winnicott talked about optimal disillusionment. Um, in our way of, of, of thinking and applying it to larger groups and, and, and social political phenomena, uh, irony needs to be used and, and much more than irony is some kind of understanding of what's behind the delusional conspiratorial let's say thinking how can we understand what leads one to to that just like we would with a patient uh, and in, until we can make contact with the fundamental primary fears that are going on uh, and address them in some way we're not going to have much success with truth-telling to those who are operating in a conspiratorial bubble. Um, so being outside the bubble is important, but having a foot somewhat inside the bubble is even more powerful. So if those who have a foot inside the bubble, let's say Republicans, I don't know, Mitt Romney, for example, uh, can speak up more. Right now we see Chris Christie speaking up, uh, although he doesn't have much of a foothold in the bubble. Uh, if we could see more people who are in the um, media enclaves who, uh, you know, kind of keep conspiratorial delusional thinking uh, fueled, being able to speak up a little more, I think we would, we would be able to see a little more possibility of addressing some of the misinformation, disinformation, lack of truth, and so on. The problem often is, though, is that people are... Uh, who think more rationally, more enlightenment or era thinkers, so to speak, think if only you can present the truth to those who uh, are operating with lies, like the, the election was stolen, for example, uh, it, it will convince them. 
that things didn't happen the way they think it happened. But it doesn't work that way. It works almost to increase, not almost, but actually, evidentially, uh, to increase resistance to tr truth. Uh, so what we have, because we have these bubbles or enclaves of information, you know, whether it's Fox News on one side, MSNBC on another, we have people operating in their own little bubbles. And it's not a question of what's the truth, but it's who owns the truth. You know, is what Fox saying is true? So the conspiracy is really the Biden administration and so on. Uh, or is it what MSNBC is saying and so on? And uh, I, I, I think that, again, to get anywhere with truth telling when it's being so virulently being attacked uh, using media and social networking and so on to do so, um, we've got we've to operate more deeply with a sense of who the individuals are and what, what's motivating them to, um, to believe what they're believing. That's quite a chore, quite a task, quite a challenge. Quite a task. Mm -hmm. So, um, I believe this is related. How, how do you account for Trump's continued popularity? Um, do you think people are forgiving him? Or do you think they, were, they thought he was guilty of anything in the first place? Or something else? Well... Uh, his popularity is informed by many motivations, <laughs> you know, so it's hard to say exactly which, but, um, you know, there are people who are, uh, who don't believe Trump for a minute who still vote for him uh, because he represents their interests, uh, whether their interests are a particular uh, political agenda, anti-abortion, for example. Uh, uh, or uh, nationalism and uh, withdrawal from international involvement. So whether it's economic, uh, motivated for keeping taxes down, uh, that can be one motivation, which doesn't mean these people don't necessarily recognize his, his character. There's others, of course, who, who are much more part of the cult uh, who would believe more in his supremacy, leadership, um, his promises of salvation, and uh, so on. And he will return America to whatever fantasy the individuals believe America needs to return to. It's usually a pretty profound fantasy because what exists today is all that's out in the open is always always been there. Uh, and many people, of course, have suffered uh, the results of it's always been there, the inequality, the oppression, and so on. Um, you know, there, there are others um, who uh, really uh, buy into Trump's persuasive genius and getting them to feel he, like them, is a victim. Yeah. Uh, he's a victim of, um, you know, the elite state that's um, after them and after him and he's there what does he say recently i'm your retribution uh, you know so and and that sells to a certain percentage of people caught up in in the web so again there are many motivations but uh, yeah it's uh, it's concerning <laughs> yes to say the very least um with that statement <laughs> I have a question. What is your worst fear about Trumpism as we move closer to the 2024 election? Well, the worst fear is, of course, that it will result in you know, very serious violence, uh, because it could. Uh, we already see the threats that are going now to the um, jurists and um, Smith, the uh, inspector, uh, who... Um, you know, was indicted Trump and so on. We see a lot of that. And of course, that could multiply and get much more dangerous. Uh, if he were to run and lose the election, uh, I'm afraid there'd be a lot of people who will be spurned into uh, violent insurgency. 
that could be the worst that could happen. Yes, indeed. So we could have what could amount to another civil war. We have a, uh, uh, at this point, a, uh, a cold civil war going on, but it could be hot. And that's very concerning. We also see some serious concerns about the pre preservation of democracy. Very and serious. Very serious. And, um, you know, could America slide into an autocracy? And it's conceivable. We see that. You've written about that beautifully in other democratic uh, enclaves in, in Eastern Europe and elsewhere. It could certainly happen. We're not immune. And, you know, the American sense of exceptionalism and our own omnipotence is also coming out of the shadows in all of this. Um, our so-called exceptionalism uh, is, uh, is very precarious, <laughs> to say the least. And it's probably a good thing. Uh, I use the uh, uh, idea of signal anxiety as a very important kind of uh, accoutrement of what's going on now, because um, the anxiety that so many of us are feeling on the right and on the left uh, is, 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 very, um, is a very viable anxiety that can be useful. Uh, it's an urgent anxiety that is like a signal, an alarm clock that wakes us up to have to deal with what's always been there and what's now unleashed. And, uh, you know, even psychoanalysts are talking, we're talking about what we should be talking about, what we should have been talking about for a long time, what European analysts have talked about for quite a while. Uh, here we are. And uh, it's, it's certainly time. And even within the psychoanalytic circles, we're seeing splits and basic assumption functioning taking place within groups. I'm sure you've, you've seen in the American Psychoanalytic uh, Association's listserv and Division 39 listserv. There are groups that are already getting very divisive with each other. And now we to listen. Bring what psychoanalytic skills we have to bear, which are a central sense of humanity and curiosity uh, and understanding and uh, hopefully empathy uh, to bear on, on people who think differently. Yeah, that would be, well, um, very positive sort of events, I think. Somehow the idea of mentalizing has it doesn't seem to be in the picture. In, in some of these situations that you're talking about, various listeners where there's been all kinds of um, acrimony, mm -hmm. to say the least. I mean, just being able to say something and have it respected as your own opinion, mm -hmm. that seems to be in abeyance or it seems to have gone underground, but I can always be optimistic and hope. Well, even within psychoanalytic circles, it, it is the same kind of dynamic that promotes regression, which is the anxiety about existence. I mean, a lot of analysts are very concerned about their well-being and future as citizens, but even as practitioners of analytic treatment. We're in changing times. Yeah. COVID has played a big role in it, even with the framework of psychoanalysis, you know, you know, doing telehealth and whatnot. And really, do we need to be seeing people four or five days a week? Or how many people can, can do that? And so on. Um, well, putting the spotlight on Trump again. <laughs> you, you, like, you like looking at Trump. <laughs> well, he's here again. <laughs> he's, but he's a symptom. He's a symptom, yeah, he's a symptom, but yeah. he's a major one. Yeah, well, he's a, he's a compelling one. Um, I make a big point in my book that it's not about Trump. Uh, it is about certainly Trumpism and, and group regressions. Uh, but I, 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 I mean, to make it about Trump is exactly what fuels him and fuels the power in so many Absolutely, ways. Yeah. So I... But go ahead. Um, to, to fuel it a little bit more. Okay. <laughs> Can you personally imagine him um, getting the nomination? Yeah, I could. Can you? Yeah. I, yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I don't exactly know how the election works with indictments and trials. I, I don't know how 
I, I'm not sure the logistics of all of that, but he can he can be elected even if he's under indictment. Even if he was in prison, I think Eugene Debs, the socialist in the twenties, was actually imprisoned when he was running for president. Yeah, I, I could imagine that. It's mm -hmm. hard to imagine it, but <laughs> well, we see leaders across the world who are under major indictments, Netanyahu and whatnot, who um, you know retain their uh, their hold over large swaths of the population. Yeah, it just didn't seem like it could happen here, but that's a very naive perspective. Like, why not? I think we all have to wake up. It was a wake up yeah. perspective for so many of us, particularly white people. Yes. And the idea that democracy could vanish is something I don't, I don't think many people were thinking about 10 years ago and back further than that. I don't know where they started thinking about it, but it's a very serious concern. There's well, democracy there's in America has always been limited to certain people. Uh, that's about, true. Too. You know, um, African Americans weren't allowed to vote for most of the history of America. Women weren't allowed to vote for a large portion yeah. of the history. So yeah. even our ideals of democracy are far from being completely realized. It's a fantasy, maybe, of democracy. Yeah. yeah. So there's so much in your book, Michael. Tell me other parts that you think you'd like our listeners to know. Well, um, one of the things I think that would be helpful and uh, is to, to understand the power of the techniques, that the manipulative tactics and techniques that somebody like Trump well, Trump specifically, certainly, but other demagogues are using around the world that can so uh, capture people. Uh, and I think, you know, those of us in psychology who've been trained with um, social, about social persuasion techniques, hypnosis in particular, uh, brainwashing, and so on, uh, there's some very useful ways of understanding that may be helpful in finding ways to get intermediary thirds to speak about them to larger swaths of the population who could maybe say, hey, oh, that's what he's doing right now. I see how it works, my God. And once you know how it works, it doesn't work so effectively. Once you know you're being controlled or hypnotized in some form or uh, suggested so persuasively, and so I, I talk a lot about uh, his, uh, his rhetor rhetorical techniques, um, his use of language, his use of slogans, his use of repetitive terms. You know, you keep repeating the same thing. The election was stolen. The election was stolen. People start believing it. You know, it's, it's amazing. Uh, and, uh, you know, you begin to be able to reverse uh, the perversion, of course, is, is about the reversal of reality in some form. So when uh, goodness becomes badness and uh, lies become truth, uh, you know, you have Rudy Giuliani saying uh, what uh, truth isn't truth and Kellyanne Conway saying there are alternate truths and so on. Uh, you start to be able to be in this, um, this bubble where you get enclosed in what uh, gets talked about in the, in the world of hypnosis is trance logic. People start to operate with a logic where something can be negatively hallucinated, be made to disappear that's right in front of you, or can be positively hallucinated, be made to believe that it's actually existing, a lie, uh, the election was stolen, it was actually true. No, the election was stolen. Uh, so, and Translogic is different than a pure out-and-out -out psychotic hallucination because there's a, like there's an example we used in, in the hypnotic field where um, you can make a suggestion that something's present in the room, let's say a pink elephant, right? A uh, pink elephant sitting at the table uh, over there on the other side of the room and to a deeply hypnotized subject, they'll say they see the, the, the elephant. In fact, they'll be asked to get up and walk toward that elephant and they'll step around the elephant because they don't want to bump into it. But when they're asked to describe what the elephant looks like, 
They're saying, well, it's a little different than the elephant in the zoo because it's transparent. This elephant is transparent. I can see through him, for example. So that's, that's what happens with statements like that. It's not like, um, yeah, I totally believe that the Democrats are a bunch of satanic cult pedophiles who are eating children, but they are kind of like pedophiles and they do try to capture our children and convince them that there was racism in America and that bad things were happening and they're destroying all the good feelings that the children will have. And so so the, 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 you see a kind of translogic operative. And, and that's what, you know, if we can start to call some of that out, um, yeah. people in positions, I, I think it would be, I think it would be helpful, that sort of thing. Okay. Well, I think I'll put you in charge of that division. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining me today for this podcast. I think that our listeners will enjoy it very much. Well, thank you. Pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Yeah. And perhaps as the election season uh, well continues, it's going to, no matter what, we can talk again, maybe. Sure. And one of the things I just, maybe I'll close with this because there's a lot to be said about methods for containing what needs to be contained. I, I do spend the last chapter and a half in, in the book really looking at these kinds of methods and what, what can be done. And that's what I hope more of the readers who get interested will, will follow up on. <laughs>